0: Fordham University is sponsoring an online panel titled Taking Responsibility, Jesuit Educational Institutions Confront the Causes and Legacy of Clergy Sexual Abuse. The panel will take place Thursday, April 21st, from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Speakers are Karen Terry of John Jay College, Gerard McLone, SJ, and Paul Eli of Georgetown, Donna Freitas, and Maka Black Elk of Red Cloud Indian School. Learn more and register for a Zoom link at fordham.edu/taking-responsibility-panel. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
1: Good to be with you, Ashley, and welcome to the home stretch of Lent, which we're <laughs> rolling into this weekend.
0: Yeah, how you feeling?
1: Uh, pretty good. I, Holy Week is one of my favorite liturgical weeks of the year, um, so I'm I'm pretty psyched actually for all the various liturgies going on. Yeah, how about you?
0: Yeah, our colleague Jim McDermott, who we've we've had on the pod before, uh, wrote this article called uh, "Feel Like You're Failing at Lent." Maybe that's the point, and I I took great heart in that. So you do art. feel like you're failing? At oh Lent. yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess I have uh, less consternation about it probably yeah. than you do. I know. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, but almost there. Almost there. And once Easter heads, we're going to have drinks on the show again. But we, again, are observing our uh, Lenten fast from alcohol on the show. Um, But we've got a great one coming up. A really exciting, uh, dare I say, sexy topic that people (laughs) always love to talk about and speculate about.
0: Yes. And that is a married priest in the flesh. A real one. yes, Catholic.
1: (laughs) And we do do have married priests in the Catholic Church. They're rare. um, But we're talking to one this week. um, And he's got a lot of good stuff to say, not just about the topic of married priesthood. um, And who is that?
0: We have Father Joshua Whitfield. He's a priest in the Diocese of Dallas and the pastor of St. Rita Catholic Community. He is also, as we mentioned, a husband and the father of six children. So as you can imagine, he is a busy, busy man. So we were very grateful he took the time to talk to us.
1: I really cannot imagine (laughs) in in more ways than one. Um, But we talked to him about what life is like as a married priest. But we also, um, he's got a great article in America um, about sort of people giving up on the synod. Um, he's still got a lot of hope for it. Uh, so we're going to link to that in the show notes and also get into some of that stuff too.
0: And in signs of the times, we talk about a kind of secret meeting of bishops, uh, at the end of March. And, uh, and as one friend speaks to another, we talk about finding God in our dreams,
1: in our dreams. Yes.
0: But before all that, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. You know, Zach, we talked about not feeling like we're doing our best at Lent, um, and one thing that helps me when I feel like I need some inspiration to 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 be better in my faith life is to look to the many saints and great women and men of the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah, and that's why we have been enjoying the uh, One Dream Course, Life of Great Christians, which, um, as you said, takes a look, uh, starting with, you know, Paul and the first apostles, and I... Uh, hitting some of the the heavy hitters, but also some people that I have not spent enough time getting to know. I was thinking like, um, the fir- the first St. Anthony, the the desert father is not one I know a ton about. Um, and the, this course gets into that, but you're right. We get a lot from learning about these, these people's lives, how they lived, uh, what they struggled with. Uh, it's really good. And I, you know, helps me get both my spiritual life, but also feel like I'm still learning. Right. Because, uh, it's been a long time since I was studying theology back at Loyola
0: right i also pre- appreciate that it's an ecumenical uh series uh, there are there are not only people in the catholic canon but also people like martin luther king who you know lived you know within the The lives of our grandparents and parents. So a reminder that there is still room to be holy today. And that is why we love learning about great Christians on this Wondrium course. And we think you would love Wondrium. In addition to the great courses like this one, Wondrium has an entire collection of videos. You can learn about beer and wine, cryptocurrency, something I definitely need to learn about Mm -hmm. because I have no idea what's going on there, and the philosophy of religion.
1: Yeah. Wondrium was Created for people like us, people that love to learn, um, keep, you know, really get into that uh, vocation of of a lifelong learner. And we highly recommend signing up for their annual plan through our special URL. And so our listeners get a special offer of just $99 for the first year, which is pretty big savings, 50% savings on the monthly plan. Uh, You'll get premium ad-free, unlimited access to some of the world's brightest minds, uh, including some of those courses that Ashley was talking about. And you're also going to get guidebooks and training guides to pair with the programs.
0: So be like us and sign up for Wondrium. Right now, our listeners get a free trial when you sign up for the discounted annual plan. To get that special offer, go to our special URL, wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Don't wait. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week, so you don't have to. What are we talking about this week, Zach?
1: So uh, we're talking about a uh, a meeting of bishops that took place, sort of, which is pretty rare because they don't often gather in groups outside of their. Uh, Twice, twice a year meeting uh, in, in Baltimore as a general body of U.S. bishops. But uh, at the end of March in Chicago, uh, cardinals, bishops, theologians, journalists, and other lay experts uh, got together for an event titled Pope Francis, Vatican II, and the Way Forward. Um, and some some names that were in attendance included Cardinals Blaise Supic of Chicago, Sean O'Malley of Boston, and Joseph Tobin of Newark.
0: Along with the Archbishop Christopher Pierre, who is the Vatican's ambassador to the U.S. So there was an ambassador uh, or a Vatican presence there. Um, and it was kind of semi-secretive. Uh, it had what's called Chatham house rules, which I had never heard of before, before our colleague, Michael Lachlan explained it, but basically people who were there could talk about what was said, but they couldn't talk about who said it. So it gives a little bit more freedom for people to be forthright, um, and in their conversations.
1: Yeah. Not quite the, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas rules, but, but similar. Um, one of the organizers, Father Mark Massa, who's a Jesuit priest and theologian at Boston College, um, said that uh, the, one of the goals of the conference was to really demonstrate that opposition to Pope Francis, uh, not universally, but, quote, to a large extent, is opposition to Vatican II. And so keynote addresses were on topics like church and the culture war, uh, media in opposition to Pope Francis, and the reception to Vatican II.
0: We obviously weren't there, so we don't know everything was said, but there's a few things you can just say in general about the meeting that are interesting. One, not only that it was bishops getting together um, out of bandwidth, um, but they were meeting with theologians. And I don't know about you, but when I think of bishops and theologians, I tend to think of them as almost in opposition to each other, because I guess the only time you hear about them is when they clash.
1: When they're fighting, yeah. Which is funny, because for most of the church's history, like theologians were, I mean, not that theologians didn't clash with bishops, but they they were at least more entwined with the hierarchy and now it's mostly lay people and so most
0: theology was done in seminaries
1: exactly um and so we're in this weird point in you know church history where because of a couple you know fraught moments in american catholic history um i'm thinking just there are a couple historical examples we don't need to get into now um these two groups really generally operate sort of like without talking to one another a lot of the times and i think that's Pro- I think that's a problem I don't know what is the what do you think the church loses when uh theologians and bishops are not you know walking you know arm in arm like they used to
0: yeah, I think they i mean i think both sides lose um by not having that engagement like theologians really are supposed to be you know like the church has a devotional side and intellectual side, and then like the ecclesial hierarchical side, and they really are all supposed to work in tandem to advance. The mission of the church, which is evangelizing the culture and spreading the gospel. And so when they're, when they're not, you know, uh, on the same page, (laughs) it's, it's not going to be effective. And I think they're, I don't know, maybe academic or academics first and Catholics second. Um, they can take on some of, uh, the the trappings of the worst parts of academia, and what I don't want to insult any theologians I look listening to the, to, I look to this. The letters you're gonna but get. You know, you know that meme where it's like a theology or theology dissertation title generator, yes. <laughs> and it's like an ontological approach to the practice of St. Paul. And it just like goes over most people's heads. And so when they see themselves detached from like the evangelizing mission of the church, I think they become, um, I don't know, maybe less relevant to normal people.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, and it, 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 we should say we're, we're really generalizing here. Right? Yes. Um, and, and Take all of this with the grain of salt that comes with generalizations such as this, because obviously like not every bishop is like, opposed to every theologian or any, even any theologians. Right. So I'm sure you have, there are numerous examples happening right now, where, you know, this, this dialogue is happening all the time in you know, just normal life and we don't notice it because it's, you know, smooth sailing. Um, that said, I think, I think there is something to what we're saying. And, and and so meetings like this are really important where they can kind of get together, be frank with one another, um, talk about some of the challenges facing the church today.
0: Yeah. And I want, I've, didn't get to the part that the bishops lose in, right. in this fracture. And that, you know, when you think about the great councils of our church, Council of Trent, Vatican councils, like theologians played a pretty important role in, in those. Theologians like uh, Joseph Ratzinger.
1: yeah, But, like, it, but it, you Vatican... have to
0: have, have a good relationship to get the invite to go to the council.
1: Exactly. <laughs> uh, like at Vatican II, I'm pretty sure like every voting bishop had like a number of theological advisors that went along with them. Um, wanted to get to just one more element of this meeting that brought up, which, uh, which is there was some framing on social media that I just wanted to like call out and address because it, people were looking at this as like these were quote Pope Francis bishops or progressive bishops or the liberal bishops you know getting together with the liberal media and the liberal theologians to all like come up with a a secret plan to take over the rest of the world. I I don't know that that's real there were, i think that was a lot of projection i first of all I, we don't like to refer to bishops or theologians or any catholic like in those terms or camps anyway but i also don't think it's a reflection of what was on the ground based on what we've heard
0: i don't know i i, I broadly yes but i do in terms of who wasn't invited um are are the critics of pope francis i guess and so the question is is it better to Exclude those people, or well, try I mean, to talk to them. And this
1: is, this gets to a large point: is we don't actually know what the entire guest list was, right? Yeah. Because it was sort of a secretive meeting uh, under these, as you said, Chatham House rules. And this is the larger point: is that like this creates like almost a well, well, who who got invited? Why wasn't I invited? Yeah. Why weren't we invited <laughs> yeah. as the leading podcasters in the American Church today? I That's what I wanted to note. <gasps> uh, but the, the anonymity of the event, mm-hmm. I feel like. Points to some larger problems with the health of our church today,
0: yeah, with that, you know Pope Francis has really encouraged you know speaking boldly um and and he has said he's not afraid to hear from his critics. he welcomes his critics and wants to hear it. What he doesn't like is is gossip. he talks talks um a lot about how that's a problem, and not I'm not saying this conference was about gossiping, but if you are on the outside it can it can take on the feeling of like, oh what are they saying about us
1: Yeah totally I mean like um that organizers bishops and theologians and journalists like it thought that it needed to be sort of anonymous to be able to like have these conversations is is, is not a great health indicator for the church especially because as I understand synodality which we're going to talk about later in the show I think uh this is sort of the opposite of that in a lot of ways on on the other hand I I get it there's there's value in closed door conversations sometimes um but the church does not exactly have a great track record for having these closed-door conversations. But in terms of bringing these different groups and constituencies together, you know, bishops, theologians, journalists, maybe this is an important early step to, you know, having more public conversations.
0: Yeah, one of the uh, theologians that, um, Mike interviewed, uh, afterwards, after the conference, cause Mike was a participant said, you know, in her 30 years as a theologian, she had, you know, never been invited to a place where she could actually just like have frank conversations with bishops. And, you know, she left it very hopeful that this kind of thing would continue and that it would in- enrich both, you know, her work as a theologian and, you know, their shared mission with the bishops.
1: And even just like being able to have, uh, I, Heidi Schlump had a column in NCR just like about how you know standing in the lunch line with the bishop just led to like much more fruitful relationship and encounter. And I think the more that we can facilitate things like that, I mean, that's one of when we get to talk to bishops on this show, it's uh, I don't know, it feels like we're you know stitching this communion that we're all part of a little bit tighter. And I think organizers for have you know that to be very proud of for this. Even maybe the next time, uh, I'm sure my invite got lost in the mail. <laughs> but next time uh, I'll, I'll be looking for my own.
0: Now stick around for our conversation with Father Josh Whitfield. Joining us from Dallas is Father Joshua Whitfield, Father Whitfield is a priest of the Diocese of Dallas and the pastor of St. Rita Catholic Community, and he's also the author of The Crisis of Bad
1: Preaching. Welcome to Judge Jesuitical, Father Whitfield.
2: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
1: Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, We got a lot of topics we want to get into today, um, but we're going to start with an article you have in America about the uh, synodal process. And I'm curious on your perspective, because Most of the discussion thus far has been sort of at the international and national level about, you know, lots of hand wringings going on about, A, how boring the idea is, a synod on synods. Um, And how terrible the word synod is. (laughs)
0: Right,
2: (laughs) right, yeah.
1: Uniquely, you you were saying earlier, Catholics are uniquely good at coming up with just like convoluted terms.
2: Words that no one understands, yeah, Yeah. right.
1: Yeah, um, but you you haven't given up hope um, at the parish level yet, and I'm curious if you could get into that a little bit.
2: You know, first things first, I, I'm quite excited and positive about the idea of the, the Synod and, and what the Synod is. When, when our, our bishop mentioned it, you know, some time ago now that we were going to begin the Synodal process, I thought to myself, great, you know, this is this is the church doing what the church do. I'd rather do this than, uh, than a lot of other things. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm still quite positive about the Synodal process
0: it's such a weird word. Like when you hear synodal process, what does that mean to you? What are you uh, you excited about?
2: Yeah. Like, so I'm a church geek, right? So all all these words like synod and conciliar and, you know, uh, everything, they're quite familiar to me, but, but I'm also quite aware that they're not familiar to most people. And so, you know, a synod as as this great coming together to sort of listen to the Holy Spirit together and you know in God's Word and so I'm quite excited about that it, you know in theory it's it's far better than Twitter right it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's far better than gossip and so so I'm quite excited about the process in theory uh, but 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 clearly you know it, it's it's you know, if you know anything about the synodal process in history or when Christians have gathered to hammer things out. You know it's drama and it's tense and and, and it, it's it's barely manageable because you know the spirit's in charge and 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 so you know on the one hand I, I'm I'm super super excited about it but you know let's be real it's going to be tough.
0: Well, so you say drama and uh gossip but it it seems much more boring than that at this point there i haven't seen the drama i haven't i don't know i we talk on this podcast about like oh why doesn't anyone care about the synod but if i'm honest like i haven't been that involved at the parish level (laughs) in the synod
2: right and and i don't know what the what the cause is for that really it could be you know maybe your parish is not all that involved or the pastor is not all that involved or he's too tired to get involved Maybe and this is kind. Of, I suggest this in in that column for America. J- just put aside my enthusiasm for the synod and let's be real for a minute. We're not in a healthy place as a, as the body of Catholics, as the body of Christians, right? We have dysfunction everywhere at every level, and we need to be real about that. We have we have scandals, we have abuse, all of the above, right? And so my enthusiasm for the synod is complicated by the reality of us as Catholics, right? and and i think those wounds that scar tissue it inspires a lot of people to be uninspired right yeah mm. gives gives a lot of people the, the the sense of you know why bother if the church isn't going to listen to me and i think that's a legitimate feeling that we need to think about and
1: work through i have read our our, our ashley hasn't yet it seems but our parish did just send out uh it's Uh, document. I saw the email. I haven't read it yet. And it was, it was really good stuff. I mean, people really like, I think were honest and open and brought up lots of hurt and frustrations and hopes Mm -hmm. and challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's going to be like lots of things that come up that I think a lot of Catholics consider sort of off topic or settled questions or, and and so they feel like their voices aren't going to get heard, even though they still have feelings on them. And, And one thing that came up in a previous synod I think is going to come up in this one is, is the idea of of priesthood and um, in particular celibacy or, you know, women's mm. ordination. Mm. I think those questions are definitely going to get raised by people and we're going to do our best not to look at you like a, like a zoo animal here. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, uh, Because I'm sure that happens all, all the time. But uh, as someone who, you know, is a married priest, I kind of want to get into this topic of, of priesthood and celibacy with with you a little bit, but f- mm-hmm. could you just like lay the groundwork about your own like vocation story? Like, uh, how did you become a married Catholic priest? Because I think a lot of people listening to this probably would be surprised to find that you are a possibility in the church. Right yeah, now.
2: right, right, right. Uh, it's always funny talking about married priesthood and, and and all that stuff, is because you know at Saint Rita, I've been here long enough where it's it's just normal. So if you talk to people at Saint Rita, it's this is not bizarre. Uh, but when I leave the parish bounds, it all of a sudden becomes strange. And, and, I, and I, think, <laughs> I think that's a lesson right there. You know, I mean, I, I used to be an Episcopalian. And, and uh, when I converted Catholicism or when I became a Catholic, you know, John Paul II in the past revision, which he put forward in the early 80s. Uh, allowed for people like me to discern Catholic priesthood. And
1: Real quick, was that, pausing there, was that part of your discernment? Were you like, well, I could still be a priest if I if I do convert? Or do you think you would have uh,
2: No, it's a good question. That's a really good question because those are two different things. And when people come to me, try you know, behind me, so to speak, along this path, for me, it was really important to make the distinction. I became Catholic because I wanted to become Catholic. And I had to be willing to sacrifice everything to become Catholic. And so after I became Catholic, then... You know that sense of vocation which I've had since I was a young person. You know the way I put it is 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 to be faithful to the to the Lord and my sense of vocation that He gave me. I have to resubmit this vocation to the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church could say yes or no. You know, and 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 I'd have to be cool with that. And uh, blessedly, the Church you know ordained me. The, The only difference between me and a celibate priest is that the Pope dispensed me from celibacy, right? Which um, uh, you know, let's assume your audience is sophisticated and can't handle a joke. The way the way I put it is um, how many people can say they have papal permission to have sex? But... Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> right? So so the Pope himself dispensed me from celibacy. If for some reason I find myself without a wife for whatever reason, um, all of a sudden celibacy becomes automatic, right? So, right, so, so you so can't
1: remarry. Can't remarry, if, if, right. Get, gotcha. and,
2: and so, it, you know, as it, as it, uh, as it's described on paper, it, it really does not challenge the, the the Western norm for celibacy.
1: Now, I uh, grew up uh, next to a Wendy's that would try out special <laughs> menu items to see totally. how people reacted um, and whether they wanted to bring them to the national market. Are are, are do you is there a, do you feel like you are part of the test group to see if you know the cel- <laughs> this this uh, non required celibacy thing would work for the priesthood? Yeah, I hope, yeah so, you, I hope you're not offended by that No, it's
2: totally a great way to put that question. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think, I think for the architects of the past revision, i.e., the hierarchy, uh, uh, I don't, I don't think so. I personally don't get into the argument of whether or not we should have married priests. I don't, and I strangely tell people I don't have a dog in the hunt. Um, <laughs> you know. The the only thing I can do, the best thing I can do, is try and be the best Catholic priest I can be, and the best husband and father that I can be, and I'll let others discern what to do with that. Does so that kind of make sense?
0: I want to I want to ask about your your children and mm-hmm. your wife. How how do they feel about all this? When I think about the cases for and against having you know married priest in the Latin right, like one of the biggest. I don't know. Stumbling blocks is like, what about the what about what about people like me who would be on the other side having a husband who uh, has to give everything to to his parish community?
2: Uh, I I appreciate you for thinking about that because that's a real thing. You know, uh, you know, for my kids, this is normal. This is all they know, right? My my oldest daughter was born a Catholic, so uh, again, so this is perfectly normal for them. You know, as a Catholic priest. Uh, my family has to sacrifice a great deal. Uh, and, and and my parish is lovely in the way they support us and take care of us. It really is. If this is going to work on a larger scale, you have to have parishes that are totally bought in, not just with kind words. And, and, and so my parish supports us greatly, but, but it, it's a real sacrifice. I mean, take, for example, you know, I mean, I simply do not know the last time I went to one of my kids sporting <laughs> events, you know, it just, that just doesn't happen mm. because there's two priests for 4,500 families. Um, and, and that's just the way it is, but we're all bought in. We, we this is what we give to the church. And I, my wife and I were just talking the other day. I mean, we're blessed, man. It's life, life's, life's good. I mean, it's, it's strange to say, but because uh, I guess it's cool to be sort of low as me, but uh, we're happy.
1: Do you, um, I'm curious if you guys like, uh have any like hard firewalls or yeah I, you don't have to get too personal here but like are there are there like guards in place guardrails in place to kind of like separate family life and parish life
2: yeah it's a few of them and, and and i really think um i mean my wife is a saint she's a better catholic than i am to be honest and uh but and she's also an excellent priest's wife in the fact that she has zero interest in about 99% of what i do uh, as far as running parishes is concerned, and so you know I'll come from a long day of meetings and pastoral counseling and this that and the other and we just don't talk about it right? We talk about you know Pete's got homework and you know you see what i'm saying yeah. and, and so we do have a normal life and and my wife is is um she's just not interested in in that sort of stuff and 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 that helps me stay normal and that gives me an environment that is not constantly church and, and that helps me that helps me serve
0: I mean I'm curious how other priests react to you yeah, <laughs> like yeah. are 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 they suspicious jealous like
2: yeah, what what do you think That's a good question I mean and this might be idiosyncratic to the to Dallas but I um I just want to give a shout out to the Catholic Diocese of Dallas. We, you know, we're humans. We screw up every day on things. But the Diocese of Dallas has, it's just an awesome presbyterate, right? And the, the second I showed up to the Diocese of Dallas, my brother priests have welcomed me and my family. You know, it's unbelievable how how charitable they've been. You know, Bishop Burns came over. Uh, just after he's made bishop and brought pizza and let my kids climb all over him and stuff, like, and so it, it's just normal. It's, it's it's hard to say. Like it's, it's normal for us, and I think the litmus test really is 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 if if the priest got his priorities straight and is and is doing his job and is kingdom driven, mission driven, he's not going to get bent out of shape about that, right? If he understands.
1: I'm uh curious what you think about what sometimes people will say like we we need to have married priests because there's a priest shortage um wondering how that makes makes you feel um cuz that that I is not necessarily an argument that i've like found
2: yeah i don't compelling. find i don't find that persuasive you know one uh that's not true in the protestant world
1: meaning it's there, there's still a shortage of vocations
2: there's still a huge shortage right so Um, and, and and then also, I I don't think, um, I usually shut down conversations like that pretty quickly by, by saying, you know, the Catholics, to be honest, just don't give enough money. (laughs) I mean, the the, the Catholics don't give the way Protestants give and, and money flows differently, and, and
1: and if you to like support a family and a totally, like, it's one thing totally. to support a priest who just has to care for himself, but if all yeah. of a sudden you've got like college got educations a, on the line and how are you going to pay the for Catholic things?
2: school? I mean, I, I mean, I've got a lot more overhead. Let's be honest. And and yeah. and, and to support that, you, you know, if you just open the door to married priests suddenly, like tomorrow, you, you would you would have a few you would have a bump of a few married priests that would congregate in huge parishes that could afford it. And that's all you'd see.
0: Another argument for married priests is just the idea that it's, you know, it's hard to live alone in this world and people need supports around them. So how do you, how do you respond to that one?
2: I'd say that's true, but I don't know if the, if the fix is married priests and let's talk, talk about how that's true. Right? So when I have a long, horrible day, and you know I, I walk out of the office and i say to the lord you know is it true you really died for these people you know it's like this one of, it's like one of these mm-hmm. days and, and 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 i i'm just you know i go home to a wife and five kids who give me a kiss jump all over me sneeze on me right <laughs> i go home and i have to be normal i i go home i have to be dad right and and sometimes that's a beating, but that keeps me normal. That keeps. I know. That so that's me... the
0: problem. The priest the... Right. Totally. So, so, so <laughs> the like... priests don't have to have be normal. <laughs> right.
1: Totally. You know, I um, want to transition a little bit to uh, the the book you wrote about uh, bad preaching because I one complaint is that I and I don't think there's this is necessarily true, but people will say like homilies are bad because I can't relate to that guy. Right. Like I've got bills mm. to pay mouths to feed. You know, I've got experience as uh, a non-celibate person that this guy just can't relate to. Oh. Um, and you know, we, we have married deacons in this country. We've had them for mm. 50 years, but I'm wondering if that, you know, I guess the first question I'll start with is, do you preach about your family at all?
2: I do. Yeah. I- I'm a, uh big believer in uh ethos right as aristotle said in the rhetoric and and part of my character part of my ethos is me and my family and I'm a dad right so if i were to sort of artificially cut that out that would be artificial preaching right and so i bring i bring the So you don't in, pretend to uh, be a celibate a priest lot. right you're when, not like
1: impersonating
2: Yeah no that there. i i you know those that i asked myself that question you know early on after i was ordained a catholic priest and you know, it's just, I can't do that. I mean, that's just, that's, and, and also my kids provide me with such an ama- amazing wealth of material, material. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it would, that'd be bad for, you know, one of my heroes in preaching was this Episcopal Bishop called Phillips Brooks. And he defined preaching in a very Aristotelian way as, as the, uh, the delivery of truth through personality. Right. And so, and I think that goes to the issue of this guy's not connecting with me. It's because it's because so many clergy I've experienced are afraid to bring their ethos to bear to bring their personality to bear. They think they have to be a certain way and they speak in a certain way which is totally different than when we talk to them afterwards and 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 so there's all sorts of reasons for that feeling of disconnect, only one of them really being that they they might be you know twenty five years old and have zero life experience right? Uh, right which is a real thing
0: i okay, so having come from. Um, the Anglican church to the Catholic church. It it, it does feel like this is a uniquely Catholic problem sometimes that, you know, Mm -hmm. because, you know, the point of mass is not the, is not the homily. It's, it's the Eucharist. And so like a lot of priests think it's, you know, it's an afterthought or at least they treat it that way. Is it a uniquely Catholic problem and why why are we so bad at this? Is I guess what I want to ask.
2: Right, right. It's uh, I, I, it's not necessarily uniquely a Catholic problem, especially today. I would say it's an intensely Catholic problem. Catholic preaching, by and large, is not very good, and th- there are reasons for it. One is is that you know sort of that that myth that the Eucharist trumps everything, and that you're only there for the sacrament. Uh, all of which I can you know the only thing I'd say to that is 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 that's not the real tradition, you know. Um the the, the genuinely Catholic tradition uh, emphasizes the liturgy of the word and the preached word too, right? I think the other reason is that is that we do not train our priests or deacons, if at all, uh properly.
1: Did you go through both versions of the prep? Did you like go through the Episcopalian homily training and also the Catholic no, Homily training? No.
2: Uh, when, you know, you know, I, I had a homiletics class in, in seminary when I went to seminary in England and, and that was very good to an extent. Uh, there was none of it in my process to become a Catholic priest. And I think that's by design, to be honest, because, you know, I, I, by, by the time I became a
1: Catholic priest, I, I've, i had been preaching for a long time. Yeah. They didn't um, want to screw up what was already working probably. All right, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, and you know, as I say in the book, I mean, I'm, my, um, I learned to preach because I was very blessed to be around good preachers, which I think is probably the best way to learn how to preach anyway.
1: This is a really important point because I one of the things I think about is other people get to see other people doing the job they have, right? Mm-hmm. Like I learn from Ashley all the time when we're doing this podcast. I can see the good things she does, the bad things she does. <laughs> right, um, cool. and, I, and, I can, and I can process that, learn from that. Priests are, when they're doing, you know, five, six masses a weekend, why on earth would they you know, go home and watch someone else preach a homily or, or totally. go to someone else's parish. And totally. that's always struck me as like a huge reason why, why there's seemingly no improvement at all.
2: Right. That, no, you're, you're dead on. That's a real challenge. I mean, you know, Augustine talked about uh, training of clergy to preach and, and he said, I'd rather send them to go listen to someone who can preach well than to hand them a book on rhetoric. That's, that's an ancient practice of imitation. You know it is sort of a problem the way we divide labor in you know modern parish ministry that that when you know when priest a is saying this mass priest b is in his office you know there there's there's very few opportunities for us to hear each other preach and then learn from each other you know that that actually could be a quick fix if 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 we valued that
0: so we've we've talked a lot about the problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering if you can give us some, some constructive uh, 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 feedback on like what, what good preaching actually looks like and what that would do for the Catholic church in the United it, States. And
1: how long it should be. <laughs> I don't
2: know how long. Well, as far as long goes, I'm pretty adamant in, in, in the book and adamant in my own life that, you know, Aristotle said your speech needs to be as long as it needs to be. And so any sort of artificial time constraint, I find unhelpful. I agree. If the preacher is horrible, three minutes is going to be unbearable Mm -hmm. Um, too, you know, and it's just going to put a bad preacher nervously on the clock and it's pointless. Just, just tell the brother, say what you need to say. And say it as best as you can. Um, clearly it doesn't need to be Protestant length, but, but we don't need to, uh, fetishize a a particular number. Now, what does a good homily look like or feel like, sound like? For me, two things. I want to, at the end of it, be able to say my, say to myself, I've heard the gospel in some form of fashion. I've heard. The, the central truth that Jesus Christ died and rose again and that makes a difference. Now how how do I hear that? You know I, I, I don't want to hear about Father's vacation. I don't want to hear Father's particular opinion about this, that, or the other thing. I want to hear the gospel. How does the gospel have I heard it and 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 has it touched where I am and what I'm doing and what I'm thinking? And then and then secondly, you know, this this is, you know, I mean this Aristotle wrote the best book on preaching there is. It's the rhetoric, and and you know he said ethos matters. And so when I when I listen to a homily, am I really hearing this guy talk, or is or is he just saying words? It doesn't have to be eloquent, but it's got to be wise, right? Um, and so and that could be two minutes. It could be twenty minutes. My average length of homily is probably fifteen to seventeen minutes. Unapologetically. You
1: still, you... Do you still uh, clock in at an hour for mass time, total mass time? Oh, yeah, total. Totally. Yeah. I think that's all people really care about. Yeah, uh, yeah. if you think
2: it, it, totally, exactly. I remember early on uh, in my uh, Catholic experience, I had this woman come to me, and I can't. I have no idea how long I preached. It could have been too long. It could have been just right. I don't know. But anyways, on her way out, she, she shakes my hand, and she says, if you're going to preach in the Catholic churches, it needs to be shorter. And I, I held on to her hand. I wouldn't let her go. And I looked her dead in the eye, and I said, "The Holy Spirit tells me how long to preach. No one else." And then, I, and then I let her go. I've never seen her since. But
1: I'm sh- that doesn't surprise me.
2: <laughs> but you know, I mean, at the end of the day, Catholics are going to have to buckle up and get used. It, it, with the increase of better pre- with, with with better preaching, will come a little bit of light. And yeah. you know, I mean. God puts up with us 24 seven. I think we can give him maybe an hour and five minutes.
1: (laughs) You're asking a lot. Uh, (laughs) I'm wondering um, what's your take on the idea of uh, mixing politics into the preaching? Because um, I think either you hear that people complain there's too much politics in preaching. Like they only hear about one issue or whatever, or um, on the flip side, some people are like, I feel like, there isn't any mention of politics Mm. or world events Mm. going on right now. And so it feels kind of like there's this disconnect from my life outside and what I'm hearing in church. Uh, What do you, how do you, how do you approach that issue?
2: It's a constant spiritual negotiation, right? Where you have to think in advance and then reflect on what you said, you know, because the gospel bears upon everything. And so so everything potentially is on the table to talk about. If the social and the political does not come to bear in your preaching ever, you know, I think you have to worry that you have succumbed as a preacher to what Do- uh, Dr. King talked about in the letter from a Birmingham jail, you know, the, the hiding behind the anesthetizing quality of stained glass, right? If you're just offering a spiritual opiate to people, that's not preaching the gospel. But, of course, going the, the other direction, one has to be careful, too, because preaching is a privilege. And I, I cannot identify my own political questions, my own political wrestling, my own political opinions with the gospel itself or with the teaching of the church. Because, because the danger there is, is I'm turning Catholicism into my Catholicism. And that's a grave sin.
0: All right. Well, we could pepper w- you with questions for another couple of hours and I'd I'd even submit to a 15-minute a homily. <laughs> but yep, a we do have to wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, but we do have one final question for you that we ask all of our guests. Uh, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why?
2: That is a magnificently wonderful question.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And we'll we'll just we'll lay the groundwork. Your wife is already a saint, you said, so you French, can't tell your no, wife. Total
2: total. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Uh, the great poet Charles Peggy. Mm. Uh,
0: All right, let's get the bio. Yeah,
2: well, he's a French poet. He died in the Battle of the Marne in 1914. Supposedly his last words were for God's sake, come on. <laughs> and, and he was an adult convert to Catholicism. And uh, he never lived to see his children baptized. He desperately wanted it. He had a very complicated life and complicated relationship with his wife and a totally real-life human. But if you read his poetry or you read some of his prose, like if you've ever read, do yourself a favor and read uh, his very long poem. It's like 115 pages, uh, The Portal to the Mystery of Hope. Most beautiful thing ever written. And if that guy's not a saint, I
1: don't know what saints are.
0: You give up.
2: (laughs)
1: Yeah. Awesome. Charles Peggy. Charles Peggy. Pray for us. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. Father Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, People can read you in the Dallas Morning News, as you mentioned, and the book is The Crisis of Bad Preaching. Did I get that right? Great. That's right. (laughs) Awesome. And uh, anything else you want to plug right now?
2: I don't know, man. Just uh, be cool to everybody. Um.
1: I endorse it. I endorse it. <laughs> I endorse
2: it. Yeah. So, thanks. This is good. Let's be good Catholics.
1: You know? Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Josh. All right. Appreciate you. I hoped we were going to make
0: it. He promised we would find the time. Memories, yeah. We hoped we were gonna make it. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach?
1: Want to shout out some new Patreon supporters that joined in the last couple of weeks. Uh, huge thank you to Patrick Cullinan and John Tiedemann, who joined a pretty, it's a growing community there. We've got um, a number of people there, some cool content coming out of there. We just released our episode with the Bishop of Pensacola, Tallahassee, right? I guess Tallahassee, right. Pensacola. Tallahassee, Pensacola. They you cut it backwards. It's a mouthful. Um, about evangelization that's a really fun conversation and it's eventually going to be on the main feed but if you want to listen to it early you can uh sign up for our to support us on patreon for you know any dollar amount and you'll get access to the entire backlog of bonus episodes so if you want to do that you can go to patreon.com slash america media to support the show
0: and a reminder that we are going to italy in september and it's not too late to sign up
1: no it's uh Reminder, it's this September 17th through 28th. Um, and I know this is a sticking point and people have limited time off, uh, but it's it's about eight days you'd probably have to take off of work, uh, but you get a lot more than that because of the two weekends. Um, and we're going to Rome, Tuscany, Assisi, Venice. Uh, one of the things I'm most excited for um, is a scavi tour of the Vatican. Uh, if you don't know this, St. Peter's Basilica is built on essentially a, a Roman cemetery. And the Vatican is like one of the like best archaeological sites in Rome where they've preserved a lot of like the ancient Roman tombs there and you kind of go through it. It's underground. You feel like Indiana Jones a little bit. Um, and at the end you kind of get to, uh, what is presumed and widely accepted to be the tomb of St. Peter, which is a really moving thing. So, uh, that's just like one half day of what this itinerary is looking like. So if you want to, uh, join us, please check out the link in the show notes. And if you have any questions about logistics, dietary restrictions, whatever it might be, uh, reach out to us via email, jesuitical jesuiticalatamericamedia.org.
0: And if you do decide to join us, our sponsor Wondrium wants you to know about a couple of courses that could get you ready. They have, a course, learning Italian step-by-step Step and region by region. And if you're like me, not very good at learning languages, this is a very accessible course. Uh, it goes slow <laughs> and I, even I could keep up. Or if you don't want to learn Italian but you do want to learn how to taste wine, they have the course Everyday Guide to Wine. So when we're doing our wine tasting in Tuscany, you'll be able to keep up with Zach.
1: Yes, I I am very much looking forward to that part as well. Uh, So, we hope you can join us in Italy. And for more information on that, check the show notes.
0: And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. Uh, Where are you finding God this week, Zach?
1: So, I've been thinking about uh, Lenten reflection that I wrote for the digital subscribers here at America uh, on the Feast of St. Joseph. And it was a little overwhelming because a lot of people said a lot of things about St. Joseph. And so it's like, what else can I add? But I basically just riffed on something Pope Francis had brought up in a recent talk that he gave about uh, St. Joseph being a dreamer. Uh, and I didn't really realize this, but basically every time you see Joseph in the gospels, he's either asleep or having just slept.
0: The original sleepy Joe. Oh God.
1: <laughs> uh, look forward to your cancellation for, for that. Um, yes, the original sleepy Joe, if you will. Um, and Pope Francis pointed out that, you know, basically that like God speaks to us in our dreams. He, you know, he says, quote, the dreaming symbolizes the spiritual life in each of us, that inner space that each of us is called to cultivate and guard where God manifests himself and often speaks to us. And I was just very struck by this because I have never really considered that God still speaks to us in our dreams. Um, and I don't know. feel even, kind
0: of like. Freudian or just like weird or new agey. I don't know. I have really weird dreams. So.
1: <laughs> totally, totally. Like, right. And, and it's, it seems pretty clear that, and Pope Francis said this too, that not everything that happens in your dreams is is God speaking to you. Um, but it did, and I don't know, invite kind of a conversation, at least interiorly in me, like, oh, okay, do I need to start getting better sleep so that I can remember my dreams so that in case God's trying to send me a message, I'm not missing out on it. Um, do you feel like God has ever spoken th- to you in a dream um
0: you know i i really hadn't thought of it um before we you brought this and we we spoke with eric uh, father eric samdrapp about it and he he said this does come up in spiritual direction all the time both in when he's the director or when he's the directee um and he said you know when you're trying to find god in your dreams to like look for patterns um and so i once once he said that i did You know, I thought about this past couple months, I had a relationship that was kind of strained and I had a series of dreams about (laughs) that relationship where like the person was very mad at me and I woke up feeling like very heavy about the relationship. And, you know, you know, I don't know, maybe that can be God being like trying to encourage me to mend this relationship and pay attention to The brokenness that I'm been trying to put off and ignore.
1: Yeah, Uh, Eric also said they ask. He typically spiritual directors will typically ask people to like record, like, "What did you eat that night?" So in case you just had, you know, are putting yourself into a food coma and that causes these recurring patterns. Uh, But it seems like the key is right. Like, it's just like the waking life where you've got all this data coming in, and the real challenge is discerning. What is the voice of God, and what is? And this is the, the scary part: is that if dreams are fair game for God, they're also fair game for the evil spirit, right? And so, trying to suss that out um, requires an interior life, community, spiritual director, all, all, all the things. Um, but I, I, I will say I, I love this idea because when we're dreaming, there, it's like very clear that there's nothing we can do. The for ego
0: this. can't get in the way,
1: or or, or maybe it's only the ego who knows. <laughs> I don't know. But like, there you can't like uh, say the right words, do the right things to, you know, curry God's favor. But, uh, when you're asleep, you're, you, you are just existing and yet God comes to us anyway. Um, so that I've been sitting with that this week too to, you know, fight against my Pelagian impulses. Um, so I guess listeners, uh, this week, I want to leave you with a couple questions to consider. Uh, do you, have you ever felt God speaking to you in a dream? Uh, had you ever considered that that was a possibility? Um, and if, if not dreaming, what, what are other experiences of life where you are maybe uh, finding it difficult to imagine God working through?
0: All right, this conversation has made me sleepy, so I will get
1: us get out us of here. out of here, sleeping, Ashley. <laughs>
0: <naturally. laughs> <laughs> Jes is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sandra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast and leave us a review if you're on Apple or Spotify. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshurt Studio at American Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.